the age of personalised medicine has arrived. Be sure to check out our new FX Medicine podcast series, FX Omics with Dr. Mark Donoghue. Explore the genomic landscape and the clinical opportunities enabling you to offer truly personalised healthcare. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Mike Armour, who joined Nickham in 2016 as a postdoctoral research fellow working in the area of women's health. Mike's background is a mixture of Western and Eastern medicine, having completed an honours degree in biomedicine before training as a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. Mike's research areas include gynaecology, pregnancy and fertility, and traditional Chinese medicine. He's experienced in implementing research projects across international borders and has a specific interest in dysmenorrhea and chronic pelvic pain. Welcome to FX Medicine. Mike, how are you? I'm not too bad, Andrew. Thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm going to leave all of the Kiwi jokes out of our podcast. Oh, that's very un-Australian of you. You're really letting the country down. So with regards to the podcast topic, research in endometriosis, um, it's really making news at the moment, particularly I saw last night in the medical news. But first I want to delve a little bit back into your history. You said Mm -hmm. that you did biomedical science, so biomed sci, and then TCM. Why search further than medicine? Um, Well, I really enjoy So I was a cardiovascular biophysicist, which sounds much smarter and more exciting than it actually was. Um, <laughs> and um, it, look, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I was I, I really enjoyed being a physiologist, and I was um, I was working for the medical school in in Auckland, um, and uh, doing a lot of uh, preclinical research in in rats. Um, and it was just, I guess, it was well, it was actually a combination of of things. I was quite uh, yeah, I miss the human contact. Rats, very good research subjects, very compliant, um, not particularly great conversationalists. What actually happened was I um, I got a frozen shoulder. I'd been sitting in front of a computer a lot the way our, our very expensive and fancy microscope was set up. Um, I was spending, obviously, like a lot of researchers, you know, many hours a day in front of that, and I got a frozen shoulder. And um, it was just driving me nuts. I couldn't sleep. It was hard to work. Um, and so at that time I was also living right next to the med school and I walked down the road and, uh, into, um, uh, into the city and, um, saw there was a, a Chinese medicine practitioner and acupuncturist there and, um, I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. You know, I've got nothing to lose. Um, I'd always been quite interested in kind of, I guess, integrative medicine, alternative medicine, what, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, anyway, I went in there and, and um. You know, it's an interesting experience because he spoke very little English and I speak still no Mandarin. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, he basically just went to town on me. Um, acupuncture, cupping, heat packs, the, the works of, um, you know, kind of a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. And um, afterwards I came out and I was like, oh, that, that feels, <laughs> feels a lot better. Um, and I guess it got me at a time where I was just a bit, you know, I would like I said, I was really missing that human contact, and um, so I decided to find out if I could um, study study acupuncture. And it turned out there was a, an acupuncture college very close to <clears throat> to there, and so I thought about it a lot and decided, yeah, I, you know, it was either that or you know, like it had already been kind of decided that I'd start my PhD um, in physiology. And then I thought, oh, do I really want to spend years and years doing something when I already know that I and not satisfied. Um, and so that's what happened. I, I told my supervisors they were suitably uh, unimpressed. Horrified. Yes. <laughs> unimpressed would, would probably be you know, quite, a, quite an understatement. Understandably, um, you know, physiologists, especially kind of biophysicists, it's a very quantitative, very um, data heavy kind of. Um, uh, you know, science, <laughs> and um, and and obviously, you know, the idea of someone leaving that to, to acupuncture was just blew their mind. Um, 
so but that's that you know that was fine and uh so yeah i left um so then i left and, and decided to study um chinese medicine and so when did you come across to australia what was the what was the draw to australia then well what happened was i obviously while i was studying chinese medicine i still really enjoyed the research side of things. I worked as a a research assistant in um, a hospital while I was studying. And um, when I graduated, I went into clinical practice with uh, a couple of my very, very good friends and really enjoyed that. But I was always really interested in research. I was still like, well, okay, this is good and we're, we're getting these good results, but how do we know, you know, how do we know what's going on? How do we know what's working? Um, and so it just happened that another friend of mine, who's now Dr. Deborah Betts, um, mentioned to me that she was starting her PhD with um, a, a professor in Australia. And, you know, why didn't I kind of join the fun? And um, so I contacted uh, Professor Caroline Smith and said, you know, I live in New Zealand, but I'd like to study, you know. Um, and she was like, yeah, if you can get a scholarship, come and talk to me again. So. What happened was I, I did my PhD while I was living in New Zealand, but through an Australian university. So thank you, Australian government, for your very generous um, scholarship. And um, and then when I finished, um, you know, I decided I wanted to to pursue this. And um, and it just so happened that uh, the day after my graduation, a role opened up um, in my area at um, at Nickham. And so uh, I interviewed for that, and I was fortunate enough to get the position. And obviously, um, that required you know a, a jump across the ditch. For our international <laughs> listeners, the the ditch is the the gap of ocean, the Tasman Sea, which divides Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, where the <laughs> land bridge used to be, but not as anymore. Not as um, for the American listeners. Yeah, we used to have a land bridge and would commute. Um, <laughs> so. At least that's what I've I've met a few people who believe that. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, I, I we my wife and I made the move in um, August 2016. So I've been here just over a couple of years. Gotcha. And and what got you interested in women's health research when you're a man? Yeah, this is always a you know a good uh, party conversation. It was really well. It was a, a couple of things. Um, at the very beginning of when I started studying acupuncture, I met my um, then girlfriend, now wife, yeah. um, and um, she had very, very bad uh, period pain, and I was very, and I still am very, um, you know, I guess pro, you know, I, I think um, <clears throat> biomedicine, uh, orthodox medicine, whatever, Western medicine, whatever term you want to call it, um, is is fantastic. And so I said, well, don't worry, we'll go to the doctor, and they'll be able to sort you out. And so I went there, and we went there together, and. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of options that she was given. It was kind of the contraceptive pill, which she was already on, and um, and kind of um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory ibuprofen, um, or a combination of ibuprofen and Panadol, and um, and that was kind of it. And I was actually like, wow, that's that's a bit crap, isn't it? Really, like I thought there'd be something more. Um, and obviously she tried that, and still really severe pain, and um. So that just, I guess, that kind of lodged in my mind. And then when I was studying acupuncture, when I was a student clinician, um, if you ever want a thorough examination, go to a student, whether a student doctor or student osteopath or acupuncturist, anyone, we have to ask all the questions, um, even if they're unrelated. So we'd often ask all women who came into the clinic, whether it was anything to do with, um, you know, whether they had a sprained ankle, a sore back, a headaches, you know, about their menstrual cycle. And what I was really surprised with was, um, you know, these we'd say, how's your menstrual cycle? And they'd say normal. And then we'd delve a bit deeper because we had to, otherwise our tutors would be, you know, rather displeased with us. Yeah. And I was seeing all of this, these things, pain, irregularity, mood swings. I was like, I don't know whether I'd class that as normal. Um and then in the course of treatment, I'd often, you know, we'd, we'd include some points which in acupuncture might be, you know, considered to be, you know, uh, pain relieving or, or reducing menstrual symptoms. And often at the end, they'd report, oh, yeah, my, my periods have been a bit better. So that just kind of set the seed in my mind of, you know, firstly, it seems like acupuncture can be effective at yeah. treating this kind of thing. And also, why are we not? 
treating more of it? Why are women not coming in requesting you know, treatment for period pain? Um, so that's really how I got started. You know, this is something that comes up time and time again, and it's just, just because something is common doesn't mean that it's normal. And it seems so, you know, this is so poignant in regards to uh, women's health and women's health complaints. Can I ask you, Mike, what are the biggest challenges in researching complementary medicines, given that you're, you know, ortho- orthodox trained? Um, I think, the, I think, well, there's probably a couple. Um, the two main ones that come across in my mind a lot are funding. Um, yeah. So obviously, you know, especially for things like acupuncture, really, you know, who's going to fund it? Because, you know, needle manufacturers, obviously, it's, it's huge money that we, you know, need to do proper research for them. And then there's nothing special about any particular needles, really. So why would they, you know, sink hundreds of thousands of dollars into it when, you know, that it, it could be any needle? So it's not, it's not going to translate into necessarily into more sales for them. Um so funding for acupuncture especially um, because, there's, you know, you, you need to rely on on really for, you know, government grants and, and things like that because, um, you know, there's not a commercial interest really. Mm. Um, so that makes it very difficult to be able to do good quality research because good quality research is not only about design but unfortunately it's also expensive, um, you know, because you need significant numbers a lot of the time, you need good follow-up, you know, you need really, if, if possible, you know, good database systems to, to capture everything and make sure you're compliant. So that that's a one major issue. Um, the other major and probably even more difficult issue is most complementary alternative or whatever you'd like to call it, um, would be what we call a complex intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it much more difficult. So, you know, when you're wanting to test, say, if we're wanting to test a pill for period pain, that's, you know, relatively straightforward. You know, we we take our active ingredient, um, we create a placebo which looks identical, um, you know, maybe both little blue or red, green, yellow, white pills, Um you know, we screen our participants first. They then go to see, you know, their doctor or whoever's, you know, dispensing the medication. They are, you know, randomised. They're given their treatment, and then we follow them up. Um, so it's relatively simple because what we're doing is we're looking at really the effect just of the medication, and it's quite easy to tease apart the non-specific effects from the placebo and being part of a study, you know, from the active ingredients. Whereas if you compare that to something like an acupuncture trial, mm. you've got so many different components. It's not just the needing. Um, so, you know, you've got so the person comes in, they, you know, will meet their acupuncturist. They'll be discussing usually, you know, they'll have a history taken. They'll get a diagnosis. They may get points specific to that diagnosis. They may be standardized. But there's a lot of interaction that goes on. There's a lot of, um, you know, dialogue creating like that therapeutic alliance right then you've got the acupuncture itself which is obviously um you know quite an unusual treatment um and it's also very hard to create you know a good placebo for that um and then so you've got so many different components and and you know in clinical practice someone seeing an acupuncturist might get herbal medicine they might get diet and lifestyle advice they might get moxibustion which is a you know like a warming stick therapy so many different things that they'll get um so it's really hard for us to control um for all of those factors and to tease out what are the active components um when we're delivering a therapy how do we control for those what do we need to you know is it the needles mm-hmm. how much of a part do the needles play versus how much a part does the overall interaction with you know traditional Chinese medicine or acupuncturist or or whoever play yeah that's really interesting you know what that's totally awakened me because I never ever thought about the the therapeutic intervention of the consultation as being a, um, mm-hmm. a variable to a, a confounder absolutely of the research. So there's a, yeah there's a very there's a guy that I um, his name is Engel and he wrote in a textbook in 1988 it was a really sorry it's just he I I'm a big fan of this guy. He's, he 
coined a term, well, we call it Ingalls double need. And it talks about what patients need. So they need to to be known and understood and to know and understand. So those are their two needs. So basically, they need to be heard by their practitioner. They need to be validated. They need to be able to talk about their symptoms, their medical history, and they need someone to go, oh, oh okay, right, I'm, I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you. Um, and then they need to know and understand. So they need to then, what they really want is an explanation of what's going on. Why have they got this problem? you know, period pain, for example, um, and they, they need to understand. Um, and I think, you know, acupuncture, just as an example, um, consultations meet those needs for people because, you know, the complex Chinese medicine history taking does provide that ability to uh, be heard and, and understood. And the explanations that are often given, while they're not the same as the biomedical explanations, you know, um, are given to people. You know, we often, most practitioners will explain, well, this is what I think is going on in terms of Chinese medicine. Um, you know, compare that to, um, you know, most women's experience with their general practitioners. When we talk to them about, you know, what causes their period pain, most of them, you know, have been told that they've got period pain, it's very normal, don't worry about it, you'll grow out of it. But very few have ever been told, well, this is why, you know, we think it's probably too much, you know, too much prostaglandins or this or that. So it's, um, you know, I think that that the difference in consultation is a huge, um, it is a, it is a really significant factor. And the interviews that we did with our participants after the clinical trial that came up again and again. The therapeutic alliance was so important; they felt listened to. Someone was finally taking them seriously. Yeah. So we can't underestimate how important that is to people and especially I think to women who often have their seem to have their pain minimized mm. belittled not believed yes yeah, that's right can I ask though wouldn't that also be a confounder for orthodox medicine for you know pharmacological intervention because they're still going to have those as an ethical consideration you've still got to have a consult um and yes. you know, regular follow-ups. So is that part of the confounders that they have to allow for? It could be. But a lot of the time what happens in, in orthodox trials is the screening will be done prior to any um, interaction with the, the doctor um, and, or whoever's dispensing the medication. So there's not always the same level of explanation um, and interaction that there would be. Um, time is another factor, you know. So when people are, um, you know, being involved in, in complementary medicine clinical trials, they're often spending a lot of time with the therapist, um, you know, 45, 60 minutes. Um, so I think we need to take that into account as well. But absolutely, there is always going to be that confounding factor, whether it's a complementary medicine trial, whether it's an orthodox medicine trial. I think it's just likely to be a great impact in complementary medicine because of the fact that the consultations are longer. Yeah. They do involve more components. And with regards to, I guess, part of the TCM uh, repertoire or armamentarium, um, acupuncture, um, I need to ask a question about, um, and this is something that various people will tell me different things. So does it affect the opioid receptor or not, or both? <laughs> um. So as far as I know, the current research suggests there's a multiple multiple pathways. Gotcha. Um, it does, the last time I've read the research, which wasn't that long ago, it does seem like it increases the endogenous opioid mechanism. So it does dump um, endogenous opioids. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that when experiments where there's, you know, there's pain relief, which is occurring, and then... Um, now can, can be reversed with Narcan, is that the... That's the one, yep. yeah. Um, and um, and we know sensory nerves are involved because that will also, um, it, it stops the, any effects when, if sensory nerves are blocked yep. or cut. Um, I, so I I forgive me, I should have said, I should have been generic then for our overseas listeners. Um, it's Narcan in Australia, but overseas, if we go to the generic name of the drug, it's naloxone. Yeah. Yep. I think that's at least part of it. Um for menstrual pain, we think there's other um, impacts. It seems oh. like there's probably an increase in blood flow um, to the uterus through um, 
increasing perfusion through the uterine arterioles. Um, and that's probably through the needling of a point called spleen six, um, spleen six, um, on the inside <laughs> of, the, uh, of the calf. Um, and it seems like there's, um, uh, it, it operates via sympathetic reflex inhibition. So, ah. so needling that point um, seems to increase blood flow to the uterus. Um, and there's been some experiments, uh, some research done by um, uh, Elizabeth Steiner Victorin uh, over the last 15 years or so looking at that. Um, and that is a real, and, and reduced blood flow to the uterus is a, is a very significant contributor to period pain. So, so this might answer, at least in part, why acupuncture might be worthwhile in um, mood disorders, for instance, with the sympathetic, with the vagus nerve. Is that right? Yes. Is that where we're going? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And also um, a lot of mood disorders, especially if they're related to menstruation, seem to be through increased inflammation. Um, and so there is evidence that acupuncture reduces um, inflammatory markers, yes. such as interleukin-6. And there's a lot of sixes in this, isn't there, really? It's almost designed to <laughs> cause an international incident. Um, yeah, so we, we think that there was a, a, a really interesting paper um, maybe la 18 months ago in the Journal of Women's Health where they looked at um, women with PMS and found that there was they did have, um, you know, the symptoms were correlated quite strongly with increases in interleukin-6 levels. So, um, and we also, you know, so we, we think that there's increased inflammatory markers um, you know, could be reduced by acupuncture, um, and that might also explain why acupuncture can be effective in treating uh, premenstrual syndrome. And I guess one of the other things that I'm interested in is when we're talking about research of TCM, but we're talking about it in the Australian landscape, and mm -hmm. um, we we are lucky enough to have the TGA as our warden, if you like, of quality. But yeah. It can be a real issue with overseas research because of adulteration and contamination, um, yeah. you know, heavy metals, et cetera. Even drugs are in there. You know, um, there's a few drugs, um, a few major culprits that are found in, and mm -hmm. they very often leak into Australia with um, internet purchases. So I guess the warning to people is don't buy over the internet, particularly with um, uh, TCM, if you don't know where the where the herbal uh, manufacturing is going on. But what about these herbal quality issues when you're dealing with a multiplex, a multitude of herbs in a formula? Um, how do you sort of control the confounders there? Do you, do you talk to a, you know how they have like a, um, a you know, Bipleurum 6 or, I'm sorry, minor Bipleurum mm -hmm. complex is a standard yep. formula. Do, yep. Is that how you control the confounding of the multiple herbs in there? Um, so, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about safety in, in some ways. Um, and definitely, like you said, patent, you know, what's called patent medicines. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's definitely, I mean, the, the quality is dubious. And like you say, the adulterants, um, you know, can be, uh, can be present. Um, and that's really concerning, um, you know, especially when you're, looking at some formulas where they're, you know, like for erectile dysfunction, you know, there's obviously traditional Chinese medicine formulas for erectile dysfunction. Um, but, you know, then when you're popping things like sildenafil yeah. in there without disclosing it, yeah. um, obviously the, the patent formula is working um, because it has sildenafil in there. Yeah. But, you know, you don't know that that's what you're taking. Yeah. Um, so huge safety issues with interactions and things like that. And obviously just, you know, deception um, because, you know, you, you're taking a pharmaceutical medication yeah. without realising it. Um, so I think, you know, I, I personally think that, you know, I would always, from my own personal point of view, use formulas which were created, um, you know, in Australia. Or in countries where there's, you know, tight GCP, good um, oh, sorry, GMP, yeah. in this case, um, you know, oversight. Um, so uh, there's, you know, certain formulas and products that I would feel very comfortable using. And then personally, patent formulas, you know, from, from mainland China, I do avoid because you don't know, I don't know what's in there. And, and that does concern me. Yeah, um, th there are some extremely competent um, ethical manufacturers in, in China, and we're certainly not... Um, 
uh, denigrating all of the manufacturers. There are some incredible companies over there, but the problem is there are those that aren't and that leak through. And so it's really hard yeah. to judge unless they've got the okay of the, the TGA in Australia. Absolutely. And obviously, you know, looking for, you know, the GMP, um, you know, that they're being produced in, in GMP certified factories. But I think it's just, like you say, it is a, it is a real issue um, because, you know, you don't want to tarnish, um, you know, everyone's herbs because of those um, those people who break the, the guidelines. But it's also, you know, I think it's just that people need to think about whether, you know, they're con- if they're concerned about risk, is there an alternative, um, you know, where they can, you know, get a similar or the same formula from another source where they, you know, perhaps there's more that, you know, they can be more sure of the oversight. Now, delving into our topic today, and that's pelvic pain and endometriosis. Endometriosis is finally reaching the headlines. It's finally getting uh, the news that it deserves to awaken people um, to the the issues that women face um, with this treatment that doesn't just reside in the uterus. Um, and it's trivialised so often. Let's talk about that, the role of integrative medicine in treating pelvic pain and endometriosis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're still in relatively early stages of investigating a, a lot of complementary or integrative medicines and in, in treating endometriosis. But there's a couple of really interesting um, things that's, that are happening at the moment, and a lot of it is, you know, uh, I'm just going to toot my own... Uh, trumpet a little bit about some of the work that we've been doing. Um, so we're just in the process of publishing um, a survey that we did uh, just about, uh, just over, wow, well, about a year ago, actually, um, where we asked women with endometriosis in Australia what kind of self-management strategies they used. And um, this was anything basically non-pharmacological, I suppose, something that they could do or acquire themselves. Um, so we asked them about yoga, exercise, rest, meditation. Um, and based on some anecdotal evidence that we really heard um, from other projects like Citizen Endo, which is a great project in, in, um, that's running, collecting data by an app on a smartphone, um, they published their kind of interim results. and. Um, we looked at that and we also found that when we're using alcohol and um, cannabis or CBD oil as well yeah. in terms of managing their symptoms. So one thing we do know, um, women with endometriosis in general, they have a really tough time managing pain. Obviously, pain is, is probably the, the major symptom you know, that, that women with endometriosis have, and that's everything from very severe period pain um, to what we call non-cyclical pelvic pain, which is just a fancy way of saying it's like period pain, but you don't have your period. Um, and a lot of women have that at least several times a week. Um, some may have it every day. Um, pain on sexual intercourse, incredibly common, and same with pain on um, bowel motions or or um, with a full bladder. Um, so pain, you know, pain, pain, pain comes up again. And obviously untreated pain um, has you know, really catastrophic effects on mental health, on, you know, work, um, social life, pretty much everything. Um, and it's a it's a struggle for women to manage their pain because certain medications like Endone, so that's yep. Oxycontin, um, you know, uh, can be really effective. But it's often, you know, there's, there's women are concerned with addiction. And what we hear from the women who've been in our focus groups is that, it's often a Hobson's choice for them. So they either sit with pain at work and are able to do things like pick up their children and um, and do other things, driving and, and things like that, or they take the medication which relieves their pain, but then they're limited in some of the other things they can do, such as, you know, looking after their children or picking up their children. So it's, 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 a, it's a horrible decision that they have to make. Um, so women are, are definitely looking for adjunct pain relief. So, you know, something they can take on top of the ibuprofen or Panadol or something to help um, improve their pain control. So what we found from our study was there's a very small number, well, a relatively small number of women um, were using cannabis. It was about 13%, um, which is, you know, while it's small, it's also high, no pun intended, um, because you know, cannabis is currently illegal uh, in mm. Australia 
for, you know, you can't easily access it mm. um, that we know of for pelvic pain. Don't get me started. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but these women were reporting very, very high levels of um, satisfaction at pain relief, um, much higher than, than any other of the other interventions. Um, they were also really importantly reporting um, a reduction in their medication that they needed. So I think it was about 52% of, of women taking or using cannabis um, reported a 50% or greater reduction in their endometriosis-related wow. medication. So the, the caveats to this are obviously a very small number, mm. and we didn't ask them specifically what medication they were reducing. Right. Um, the implication is obviously it's pain-related medication, but we can't be certain. Oh, that's oh I see. Right. Um, so we need to do some follow-up work on that. Um, but they were able to reduce medication that they were taking specifically for endometriosis yep. by fifty percent or more. It, it's a um, fair guess. Can, can I ask? Can I ask just for a bit of clarification? Sure. Hobson's choice. That's the take it or leave it. Is that right? Hobson's choice is is sorry. It's it's a choice where it looks like you have a choice, but you don't. You don't. Really. Yeah. So you know, it seems like you've got a free free will, but you you don't. Um, so you know, for a lot of these women. They don't have the choice to take the pain relief because they might need to go and pick their children up from, mm. from school, mm. and they don't want to risk, um, you know, taking something which might impair their ability yeah, to yeah. Um, drive. So, you know, it, to give you an example, one of the women in our folks group said, you know, she has to, she puts up with pain all day, and then she goes and picks up her daughter, I think it was, from school, gets home. And basically, as she's walking in the door, she's chugging down the yeah. the codeine based, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, so she can finally get relief, which would um, rob her obviously of of family time and things like that. In, yeah, so in certain situations, says, absolutely. And then she says, "Well, I have to." Then I go to bed. Basically, yeah. I'm, I'm exhausted from the pain. Then the painkiller kicks in, and you know, there's, there might be some sedative effects of yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. She says, you know, my, my husband's amazing. He has to basically, you know, we kind of like, I just tag out. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a huge, um, impact on, on women's lives. Um, so that was, that was one of the really interesting findings from our study. The other one was, um, just around exercise, um, Obviously, you know, there's huge public health messaging at the moment about the benefits, the very real benefits mm. of exercise. Yep. Not just for getting beach body ready, but, um, you know, mental health. I think this, you know, this, and my colleague, um, Dr. Joe Firth, has, I don't know, published like a million meta-analyses now <laughs> on um, the, uh, well, it's probably pretty close to that, um, <laughs> on exercise and, and yeah. depression, schizophrenia, all kinds of mental illness. And I think, you know, there's some pretty solid evidence that exercise is beneficial. What we found was women with endometriosis often reported exercise made them feel worse. Um, and again, we didn't collect exactly the type of exercise, so it's just a broad category. Mm. Um, but there was a high rate of um, adverse events and they reported that they felt exhausted um, because obviously fatigue is another very, very common symptom of endometriosis, um, which is just gaining more recognition now. So they were exhausted and they had um, what they call flare-ups. So um, very common term in the endometriosis community. So it basically means their symptoms, especially their pelvic symptoms, just got worse, right. much worse for a short period of time. Um, and so, you know, the, there's difficulty there because, you know, women are wanting to, you know, get the benefits of exercise, you know, stress and, um, you know, depression and anxiety, which are very, very common in women with endometriosis. Um, but when they're trying to do that, they're kind of getting thwarted a little bit um, because it's often causing increased pain. Um, so there's a lot of frustration there. Um, so we think that, you know, probably the best idea would be, you know, that there's more resources for women with endometriosis um, in terms of exercise, getting some oversight or supervision by someone who's trained yeah. to be able to kind of slowly grade up that exercise rather than jumping straight into yeah. something like that happens in a multitude of, of, of conditions, yeah. you know, the weekend um, warrior type thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, this is psychologically quite hard, you know, it could be very tough, you mm. know, like 
I'm trying to do something for my health, but my endometriosis is thwarting me again. Um, so I think, you know, exercise could be great, but it probably needs to be done under the supervision of someone, you know, who can kind of prescribe exercise rather mm. than being like, I'm going to go and do an eight-week boot camp or I'm going to, you know, start CrossFit or, you know, and then, yeah. you know, you're getting this kind of flare-up. Um, what, what about certain types of exercise? Like we're learning from the exercise physiologists at, God, I hope I get this right, Curtin University um, in Perth, uh, that certain types of exercise or varying types of exercise benefit varying types of cancer therapy. Yes. Um, so protective against, say, prostate cancer was jumping. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, to maintain bone density. Um, yes. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of dad dancing, um, but but <laughs> but were, were there certain types of exercises that didn't have the flare ups at all? We don't know. Unfortunately, that was a you know that was a shortcoming. It was a very large questionnaire, so we tried to make it as broad as we could. So yep. we really just had exercise as exercise. Yeah. Um, we did get some indication that yoga, um, we asked that as a separate question. Um, we did get some, and we, we asked a lot of free texts as well. We gave women the opportunity to talk about it, um, different things. And we found that yoga, there was definitely a, a positive trend towards yoga being beneficial. Mm. Um, and it could, again, just be that slower, more graded movement. Um, you know, so when you've got, uh, you know, adhesions and, and things like that, it's possible that that kind of slow stretching is beneficial where, you know, perhaps jumping or high impact exercise may, may not be, yeah. um, because of, you know, the, the structural component. And what about any biochemical measurement with the exercise? Is that, you know, obviously this is early days, but has anybody looked at this? Like you were talking about, um, inhibition of interleukin-6 with acupuncture. Yeah. Has anybody looked at inhibition of inflammatory markers with varying types of exercise? That's a good question. I actually don't know. Um, I did read something recently, but not recently <laughs> and, and well enough that I could I, I would comment on mm -hmm. it. But there was, def there was some, I think there's some conflicting research. What I remember this particular paper was... Um, contesting the idea that exercise has an anti-inflammatory effect. Right, gotcha. Um, so I don't know, and it's certainly no one, as far as I know, has really looked at exercise um, in women with endometriosis in a, in a prospective kind of way. So there's been some retrospective studies where they've looked at, um, I guess, you know, trying to tease out what might cause endometriosis, and I think they looked at, you know, was exercise either a lack of or too much? Um, a trigger for you know, it. A trigger for yeah, it, but it, or, or it a driver. Seem, yeah, it doesn't mm. seem that way. Um, and also, I think it's really there's so many different factors that you know. I'm I'm quite I'm quite cautious about using you know the, that kind of epidemiological data, right. um, unless you've really captured all the other possible components. But as far as I know, there's no there was no link between endometriosis and exercise. Yeah. Um, what would be really interesting is to look at you know, the effect of exercise of different types of exercise on endometriosis in a, in a, in a you know, kind of like a randomised control. Yeah, trial. structured way, yeah. Yeah, yeah structured way, absolutely. And measuring inflammatory markers. That'd be interesting. Absolutely. But, but I think there was also some, uh, I think you would use the word contested, there was also some argument as to what inflammatory markers were more appropriate to measure, weren't there? There's no, there's absolutely no consensus at the moment on inflammatory markers for endometriosis. Mm. Um, obviously, the holy grail is an inflammatory marker or some kind of marker which allows accurate detection of endometriosis without a laparoscopy. Yeah. Um, I think there was a Cochrane review on this just a few months ago. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, at the moment, still nothing. Yeah. Um, so, because that's that's obviously that would be amazing. Um, because one of the major issues is, um, you know, there's no diagnosis really um, for most women of endometriosis without a laparoscopy. They can have suspected endometriosis, but um, most doctors won't say they definitely have it without a laparoscopy. Um, and it's certainly a current research standard that that's the, the gold standard. You must have a, a laparoscopy yeah. diagnosis. Um, and it's, that's obviously invasive um, and not to be taken lightly. And most um, you know, doctors uh, can be quite reluctant 
to to go down that route. And should so, be done know, by a and should be done by somebody suitably trained, like a career ab- expert. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and so you know, having a a non invasive, you know, like a form of blood test um, would just be uh, fantastic and mm. would allow much easier screening of women who've got symptoms suggestive of endometriosis. Yeah. Just going back to herbs a little bit, when we're talking about mm-hmm. TCM, what about some yeah. Western herbs? You, you're t- forgive me, you were also including the um, THC and CBD use. Um, yes. Firstly, THC and CBD versus opioids. Um, mm-hmm. Has anybody looked at that with regards to benefit, less adverse effects or side effects, more compliance, greater acceptance? Anybody looked at that? I'd say that's more Justin Sinclair's area than mine. Um, I do believe that there has been, you know, there is research to suggest harm minimization, substitution effect, you know, so that um, people are actively substituting cannabis um, or CBD oil for their opioid-based medications. Um, but again, there's, you know, the research is quite contentious yeah. um, because there's been a lot of trials, not all of them well designed. Um, you know, so you've got issues with, you know, the strains, with dosage, with outcome measures. Um, you know, so what all, that always makes it a lot more uh, difficult to determine. Yeah. Um, um, what about some Western herbs? Any, anybody looked at, you know, curcumin is very commonly used, for instance. Um, yes. Then you've got other ones like Jamaican dogwood and um, California poppy. Um, there, there was a herb that I used to employ, not for endometriosis, but for other chronic pain years ago, but it was always an S4, that is prescribed mm-hmm. herb, and that was um, gelsemium. I had a very understanding doctor that I used to consult with. Um, and that was the herb gelsemium, not the homeopathic mm-hmm. remedy gelsemium. Um, I was blessed with be, being able to use some of these herbs. Um, <laughs> but but overseas, like in Germany, these are often employed. Mm. What's our knowledge of the use of these herbs at this stage? I think there's very little on Western herbs that mm. I know of yep. um, for treatment of endometriosis. Um, you know, there's some research on Vitex. Um, but that's mostly around premenstrual syndromes rather than um, endometriosis-related yeah. pain. Yeah. Um, I'd say the most research is actually on ch- uh, traditional Chinese medicine formulas and one formula in particular, which is, um, excuse my terrible pronunciation, Guizhou uh, Fuling Wan. So that is uh, G-U-I um, space Z-H-I space F-U space L-I-N-G space W-A-N. And WAN just means pills, so it could be grades of filling san, grades of filling tang, depending on the how it's taken. Yeah. Um, and it's cinnamon and poria twig decoction. Right. Um, and that's the most commonly used traditional Chinese medicine for endometriosis. There's some survey data out there um, from Taiwan, I believe it is, um, where that was overwhelmingly the most common formula used. Um, and that seems to be quite promising. Now, most of the research, unfortunately, is not particularly high quality and it hasn't been published in English language journals. Um, but it certainly seems like from the research that's out there, um, it could be very promising. Um, and we are about to undertake a clinical trial looking at a, um, a slightly modified Guadza Fooling One formulation for the treatment of endometriosis. Gotcha. Um, and we'll be starting that in 2019. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so that'll be... A, that'll say be a, no you more. Know. You can't say yeah. any more. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so we'll... Um, yeah, so but I think that that's probably the most promising um, traditional Chinese medicine formula we have at yep. the moment. Um, and I think that, you know, herbal medicine has such a possible role that that could be played. Um, but I, like you mentioned earlier, endometriosis is just, it's just coming out mm. of the shadows, if you like. Um, so unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of um, research funding for endometriosis. So, you know, in Australia, for example, um, you know, there's, there is now, um, through the National Action Plan, there's going to be specific funds for endometriosis. But if we go back a couple of years to 2016, the amount that endometriosis got was 2.8% of the amount that diabetes got. Yeah. Um, 
despite the fact that in terms of cost of illness burden and impact on life, incredibly similar. Um, so wow. I'm hoping that um, I'm really hoping that you know some some researchers in Australia or anywhere in the world, you know, do look at you know properly designed clinical trials for herbal medicine for endometriosis because women do want alternatives they do want adjuncts they do want something to help control their pain where you know hopefully there is less risk of um addiction less side effects yeah being able to um, function yeah being able to function absolutely you know it's it's it shouldn't be a choice between being in pain and being kind of you know compass mentis um so I think it would be a great place for, for researchers to look. And there might be some trials going on at the moment. Obviously, that's one of the problems we have, we have in research is that, you know, it's years between conception, execution and publication. Yeah. I've got to say, I'm, I'm so glad in Australia we've got these great research institutions, integrative medicine research institutions, you know, like where you're working, you've got the Jacker Foundation, you've got NIM in, in, in Melbourne, you've got Endeavour College and UTS and the, the, mm -hmm. these great research areas in Australia that are really looking seriously, scientifically, at um, at integrative medicine adjuncts, alternatives, options in a responsible way. Like, you know, for instance, with existing medications and with, you know, reasonable populations that we're going to work with rather than quote-unquote well people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> I've got to say, Australia really is at the forefront of so many areas of research, thankfully, in women's health issues as well, like polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis is coming up now, thankfully. Um, it's just so great to see this finally, as you say, come out of the shadows. Yeah, absolutely. And as much as it pains me to say it, you are, you are right. Australia is, um, you know, they are, Australia is doing fantastically well. Um, you know, and and all of those institutes, you know, I've, we collaborate with a lot of them. And, you know, it's really high quality research, which is what needs to be done. You know, we need to have um, research institutes um, who are doing, you know, even, you know, whether it's government funded or commercially funded research independently mm. um, and, you know, looking at, you know, sensible outcome measures you know, sensible research designs, um, you know, so we can we can really have a good look at what place integrative medicine, you know, what role it plays mm. um, without, you know, um, overstating the case, but also without being, you know, without dismissing things without looking at them first. That's right. So, the, you know, there's a, this is something that always plays on my mind and, and that is... Um, you know, just because there's no evidence against it doesn't mean there's automatically evidence for it. I get it. I get that responsible thing. We can't overclaim. Yeah. Um, but for goodness sake, where there's real need, where people are in pain, where people aren't well treated by orthodox options, we should responsibly, ethically be seriously looking at scientific options um, in the integrative sphere. Um, and that includes exercise and lifestyle and diet. I, I get that, but we really, really need to have some serious investigation into these, um, you know, alternative therapies, which include TCM and herbal options as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you say, you know, we we have a population with women with endometriosis are a population which do not have good pain control. Mm. Um, it impacts every single aspect of their life from their work, their social lives, their friendships, their romantic and sexual relationships. You know, um, you know, if there's a, if there's a cure that comes out and, and, you know, like herbal medicine is an acupuncture is no longer needed. That would great. be great. Great. That would be absolutely, I would be the first person to celebrate that, but we don't have that at the moment. Um, I hope we have that in the future. But in the meantime, we need to think about the women who are living with us. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the ethical thing to do. Yeah. You know, from, I agree. Like, you know, we need to say, okay, so we want a cure. Absolutely. We need to fund research into that. We need to fund that without a question. But we also need to fund research into, you know, if we find a cure tomorrow, let's be realistic, it's going to be 10 years before, mm -hmm. you know, it gets through trials and approvals and things. So we need to think, okay, so for those next 10 years, what, how are women going to 
you know live on a day-to-day basis so you know that's that's my that's kind of my thinking here here dr mike armor thank you so much for your wise words and and <laughs> opening up this sphere of um of research in you know including tcm um and acupuncture and things like that um into women with gynecological issues i, I really um admire your research as a man i might say it doesn't preclude us caring you know well done to you yeah absolutely not and i think that that's you know um men should care you know we all of us (laughs) just as humans you know we should care about you know other people and when you think about it from a practical point of view everyone's got a mum most of us have sisters, cousins, aunties. The chance of them being affected, someone you love being affected by, you know, a, a woman's health condition like endometriosis or, mm. or even just period pain, it's so high, um, and it's not. So it's not a woman's problem. It's a. It's a. You know. It's, it's a. It's a societal <laughs> problem. That's right. Absolutely. You know. Um, and we need to think about it like that rather than just secret women's business. You know. Yeah. Um, they need to fix um, and I think probably I haven't heard Lara's podcast with you but I'm sure she probably said the same thing it's, it's a taboo topic you know that's why it's one of the huge problems you know I often say that I can't talk about my research at the dinner table um, because you know it, it's kind of considered to be shameful dirty sexual taboo something um, and I think that's a huge part of the problem that we you know Fifty percent of the population, you know, menstruates, and it can't be talked about. Well done, Mike. Thank you so much for taking us through these issues today on FX Medicine. No worries. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Registrations are now open for the seventh Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Sydney from the third to the fifth of May, 2019. To register please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.